This message was originally given at Covenant Baptist Church in Valdosta, Georgia. Let's listen to the Word of God from our Sunday morning service. Thank you, Tommy, and greetings to all of you. I come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the power of caffeine. So, anyway, it's great to see you all. Some of you who were at our house last night know what I'm talking about. So, uh, anyway, it was, uh, but it was a, a lot of fun, and we enjoyed the fellowship as well, and um, had, a, had a great time yesterday. The Lord really blessed us with good weather, and, and uh, hope you all enjoyed the fireworks show. Oh, yeah, there we go. It took several burns to the back in order to produce that. So, yeah, we were, uh, it's all good. So, no, we were glad, glad to host that and appreciate everyone's uh, being there. Today, we're actually going to conclude and wrap up chapter two of the book of Ephesians. <clears throat> Praise the Lord for allowing, allowing us the opportunity to be able to go through this uh, letter together and the timing of it. And as we come to this, you know, this is really a, a letter that has a particular focus and interest on the glory of God. And it's the glory of God that the focus of God's glory here, though, is specifically in the glory of God's grace. God's grace, you know, the, the glory of His grace first demonstrated through our salvation individually. But then, look, that's chapters, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. But then by the time we get to verses 11 through 22, the shift then moves from the glory of God's grace, not just in our individual salvation, but then how that salvation is then displayed and worked out also in the life of the community. So both of these uh, are in view throughout chapter 2, how God is not just saving us as individuals, but God is uniting us together, uniting people together by the power of His grace, and not just uniting people, uh, you know, who, who are all sort of of the same sort of ethnic, uh, you know, ethnicity or social class or any of those things, but the, the opposite of that. God is taking various backgrounds and nationalities and ethnic groups and social classes and people from all of a variety of experiences, and He is bringing them, bringing them underneath the feet of the Lordship of, the, of Jesus Christ. And that is Paul pointing to us, saying this is, a, this is the glory of God's grace. That not only does he save us, but then he unites us, no matter what our experiences are, no matter what our backgrounds are, races, nationalities, whatever these things are, and yet he unites us under one new head, a new, you know, the, the, the headship and the lordship of Jesus who is the Christ. And so, Paul, after dealing, as I said, with our, in our salvation in, chapters two, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, he tackles the distinction of these two groups, Jews and Gentiles. And I think most of us in this room would qualify as Gentiles, right? 
So he deals with us Gentiles and us reading this letter and how even though we were separated from the Jews in the sense that we didn't belong to them ethnically, religiously, politically, the Gentiles did not have that sort of heritage of God's covenants and his promises and all of those things, but now those distinctions are meaningless. Paul says in chapter 2 verse 15, in the second half of verse 15 there, he says that in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus you know, God has made one new man, one new humanity. If you think about the chronology of the Bible, particularly Romans chapter 5, you know, the apostle Paul says, look, every person that's born is born under the headship of Adam, the first man Adam, Adam and Eve. And as a result of that, we inherit Adam's death, we inherit Adam's sin, we inherit all of those things. But everyone who by faith who joins to Christ, you now are under a new headship. You are now under the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ. You inherit his life, his resurrection, you inherit his blessings. And so all of humanity is divided under one of two headships. You're either under the headship of the old man or the first man, Adam, which means you are dead even while you live, or you're under the headship of Christ, which means now that you have experienced the first resurrection and you are awaiting the fullness of the second resurrection when you experience the fullness of salvation. So let's read this together in verses 11 through 22, and we can capture really the, the whole sense because I, I know we've, we've talked about this in three separate sermons, but it, it's just such a wonderful text that deals not just with Gentile inclusion with the Jews in the sense of them being included in God's redemption plan, you know, God's redemptive history, but it also deals with the very nature of what it means to be the church. And so let's read, even though we're going to focus on verses 19 through 22 this morning, we're going to read 11 through 22 to make sure we capture the whole text. And Paul says, therefore, remember the formula, formerly you Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, and having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one, broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body, to God through the cross by having it put to death, by having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the holy ones, with the saints. And you are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Mm. The title of this message is Under Construction. <laughs> under Construction. The church is building and growing into God's holy temple. A little embarrassing story about myself. A few weeks ago, we were 
getting ready for a Friday morning men's Bible study, and I came around North Valdosta Road and was coming down Country Club Drive here, and you remember they've had this barricaded because of the sinkhole construction over here? Well, I turned left, and guess what? I didn't see a barricade. I thought, ha, they got this thing fixed. I come flying through there, and to which all the construction workers standing around responded by going, you know, and I thought, whoops, you know, and, uh, but I was way too embarrassed to turn around at that point, right? So, you know, and then my truck was too wide to go in between the barricades. I was like, oh, man, you know, so found a little sliver of driveway and just kind of eased my way around, scratched the side of the back of the pickup truck, and, uh, but got my way around, you know? So anyway, uh, but look, you know, I saw what looked like something that was complete, but it wasn't quite complete. And when you look at the church, I mean, this is something where, you know, the Bible's giving us sort of a vision here of what the church ultimately is going to look like. You know, that road looked like it was completely done, but there was still construction, there was still work to do. And so when you look here at the, this, you know, this age, what we've called Many times in the past, we call this the already and the not yet, where, you know, there's the new creation work has begun in Christ, but it's not yet fully complete. We are on this path that we are awaiting fullness, right? God has, you know, in Christ, we've been blessed with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of Christ himself, that is sort of a down payment, the Bible tells us. Remember this, we saw this in chapter 1 of Ephesians. Paul calls the giving of the Spirit a down payment of the, you know, showing it's a down payment to a future inheritance that we will all be able to participate in and we will all be able to share in. And so in many ways, the, you know, when you look at the analogies here that even the Apostle Paul describes about the church is that, you know, there's a vision here of what the church ultimately should look like, and yet we're not quite there. We're still this building. We're still this edifice that's under construction, and God is taking each of us as living stones, like living bricks, and putting us each one into this building, and it is growing into this holy temple of the Lord. And so we're all under construction in that way. And so when you look at this, I mean, Jesus, what Paul has been talking about all throughout this chapter 2 here, especially beginning in verses 11 through 22, that Christ has united all of us by his death. Jesus raises us to new life, but when he raises us to new life, this is not a remodeled self. This is not a plastic surgery self. This is a whole new life that the Bible calls new birth, new creation, new heart, new mind, total transformation. One of the most familiar verses in the Bible is 2 Corinthians 5, 17, where Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creature. The old things passed away, and behold, new things have come. New creature. What formerly made you, you, no longer self, to, to determine who has greater value, which life has a greater value. When the reality is, it doesn't matter if you're rich, poor, black, white, ugly, beautiful, it doesn't matter. If you're in Christ, those distinctions go away. Worldly distinctions, old life distinctions, racial distinctions, economic distinctions, those things don't matter because God, what we learned last week was that God has created an entire new race of people that are united by the death and the blood of Christ. 
That's why I love Colossians 3.11 that we read last week. You know, Christ, it, Paul says, in Christ there is not Greek uh, or, why are people calling me now? Anyway, a um, bunch of pagans, you know, calling me in the middle of a sermon, good grief. Um, in Christ there's not Greek or Jew or circumcision or uncircumcision, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free. And you know what? We could also add black and white, rich and poor. But Christ is all and in all, Paul tells us in Colossians 3.11. Listen, you know what that means ultimately? It means that all of this is helping us to understand that the Bible is an equal opportunity destroyer of pride, lust, selfishness, greed, ambitions, ignorance, and foolishness. It means no matter who we are or what we are in the world, we all have the same problem and we all need the same solution. We're all sinners, all redeemed in Christ. And it was only by the work of Christ and the glory of God's grace that changed our status whatsoever. I've said this many, many times. You know, about joining a church, right? The, the beautiful thing about joining a church is this. You all have to admit you're messed up before you can become a part of it. Did, did you hear what I just said? To join a church, you admitted you all have a problem. And you're all messed up. I'm messed up. But the only way that my status was changed was because of the glory of the grace of God in Christ. Not because of what I've done or because of what you have done, but all because of him. You know, when we began this section, we looked at how this relates to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 10 and 22, that the goal of redemption ultimately is that God is subordinating everything, both in heaven and earth, underneath the feet of Christ. You remember that in the Great Commission passage that Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 28. And even here in Ephesians chapter 1, the goal of redemption is that God is uniting everything underneath the feet of Christ. And the first stage of people in the world of those outside the church, of being able to recognize the rule of Christ, as we learn in verses 1 through 10, is our individual submission to the lordship of Christ. And then in verses 11 through 22, our collective submission to Christ and being joined to one another. And then when the world looks at this, they see that God is uniting even Jew and Gentile, that even these distinctions that the world might make by the fact that he brings them all underneath one head, one person like that is a marvel to the world that those distinctions that the world is so, you know, adamant about no longer matter. And so this means that the church, you and I, here in this congregation, we are to be a picture of God's new creation humanity where our new, please hang on and listen to what I'm saying to you, where our new identity in Christ is superior and it transcends any former distinctions we once made about ourselves. Whatever we defined ourselves, whatever, however we distinguished ourselves in the past, those things go away because what becomes our superior identity, what transcends all those other distinctions now is our relationship to Christ, and that is what ultimately defines our relationship to one another. 
That's why I read to you last week 1 Peter 2, 8 and 9, where Peter talks about, look, we've got new life. We have new birth, a new race, a new class, a new government, a new job. And, and also with that, if, you're, if you saw this in verses 19 through 22, it also means that, you know, that coming to Christ also comes without any extra charge, a complete complimentary package of a whole new family, all right? A whole new family is included with this. Did you see that here in, in Ephesians 2, verses, in verse 19? This is really the first point. Paul is concluding all of this, and the first point here is he says, look, God has, brought, God has created an entire new family through this reconciling work that Christ has done on the cross. Reconciling us to Himself, that is, God reconciling us to Himself through the cross of Christ, also means that He's turned around and He's reconciled us, one another, together. We all have this common relationship now. And we throw around terms like brother and sister, and sometimes we use those terms because we forget each other's names, right? But, but brother and sister means a whole lot more than even just the way our culture has adapted. You know, even, you know, even when I'm out and people, people that I know, you know, who really are not Christians, and they'll say, what up, brother? I'll just respond, what up, friend? You know, because I'm not going to call you brother if I'm not related to you in Christ. It's a very rich term that has very specific meaning in the Bible. I'm very careful about who I call brother and who I call sister, and we should all be wine. Because what Paul is telling us here is that now being joined to Christ is also now joining and belonging to the household of God. You have a whole new household name. You belong to a new family. You belong to, you have new relationship now. And what we see in verse 19. I love this because, you know, did you see how verse 19 starts out? It starts out with the so then. In other words, it's a conclusion. It's a conclusion to what Paul was talking about in verses 11 through 13, where he said, look, you Gentiles, you, you guys were separated, you were excluded, you had no part. But, but, but then he describes in verses 14 through 18 all the work that God did through Christ to bring this unity of Jew and Gentile together. And then, he's, and then he wraps it all up in verses 19 through 22 and says, so then, or as a result, or consequently, look what he says, consequently, You've had an incredible status change. The Gentiles who were formerly separated, well, they've all been brought near by the blood of Christ. We've all been united together through Christ. We are now this whole new household. Glance back with me to chapter 1, verse 5, where Paul says that God, the Father, predestined us to adoption as sons through Christ Jesus to himself. Being adopted in the ancient Roman world is a formal legal process just like it is in our own world where there's actually an adoption decree. There's a legal name change and the adoptee has full rights and full privileges and full benefits of belonging to that household. And that is exactly the kind of household language that the Bible uses to describe our relationship to God and our relationship to one another. Every single one of us who are in Christ have been adopted. 
We were alienated. We were estranged from God. We had no part with his family. We had no part of that household name. But because of the work of God in purchasing us through Christ, we've all been adopted into a whole new household. And brothers and sisters, it is our responsibility to hold up the household name. And the household name bears the name of Jesus Christ. Our relationship to the church is described here in verse 19 as something both negative and positive. And he explains this by saying, look, you're, you are no longer strangers or foreigners or aliens and foreigners, but we are now fellow citizens with the saints and God's household. And it's interesting here, you know, even how the Apostle Peter will describe the church later in 1 Peter 2.11, you know, he describes the church as actually as aliens and strangers later, but it's that we're no longer aliens and strangers to God, we're aliens and strangers to the world now. We, we've, we've shifted our citizenship. It's no longer about what particular nationalistic identity that, we're de- that we are defining ourselves. Instead, our citizenship to the heavenly Jerusalem, our citizenship to the kingdom of God, are, though that transcends and is superior to any kind of citizenship that we have in this world. Brothers and sisters, I, listen, I am as upset as many of you about the events that are going on in our nation and the destruction and really just the absolute ignorance of history. But let's also remember, kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. And the ultimate kingdom and the only kingdom that's ever going to survive and stand is the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And let me tell you something. There, you know, I, I, was, I made this statement yesterday when we had the prayer before the food, uh, before we ate last night. And I said, listen, I am so grateful that I can stand on a microphone, blurt out on speakers, and pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm grateful for that freedom, but one day that freedom may not come. That one day that freedom may not be here. You know, it's one of those things too, you know, um, you, you never panic if you have a plan. You know that? Whether it's a home invasion, and my, my kids, you know, I mean, some of you know that I fly and stuff. You know, it's one of the things that, you know, I, I never, if I lose an engine in the air, I, I don't care. I mean, I just do what I'm trained to do and follow the checklist and, you know, and just, you know, if we're flying to the ground, we're flying to the ground, you know. But, I mean, at least we did everything we did on the way, you know, did what we were supposed to do on the way down. You know, but, I mean, but, but my point is, is that you, you know, it, you never panic if you have a plan. And my fear is that so many of us aren't preparing ourselves for a day in which we may not be able to worship freely. And how that's going to test your faith, test my faith, how it's going to test our relationships and test each other. And you know what? It, you, know, you, you don't wait till the battle begins to start developing a strategy for your war. It's best to know those plans before you get into it, right? And, you know, and I, I will tell you, the church today is woefully unprepared, especially in our country and maybe even here and maybe us, are very very unprepared for a day in which our freedoms may be stripped from us and how that's going to impact us. And are we willing to give up, sacrifice one another? And Paul starts out by talking about we're, we're a part of this household now. Our source of identity and our belonging is in the church. 
There's a bond that we share with brothers and sisters in Christ that cannot be shared with anybody else who is outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, think about what Jesus even said when his mothers and brothers came looking for him. He said, hey, you're, you're, you know, your mom and your brothers are all outside. And Jesus looks at them in Matthew 12, 49 and says, he stretches out his hand, points towards his disciples and said, behold, my brother, I mean, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven, he is my brother, sister, and mother. Interesting. You know, I pray and I long for the day where our church can get that kind of thinking about each other. You know, I want us to understand that that kind of relationship with each other, you know, that, that in the church that we will love one another and protect one another and serve one another and be loyal to one another and be tight with each other because God has provided this fellowship And this household that we're all a part of, he's provided this for our belonging, for our security, for our sanctification, for our refuge and our protection. We have a unique status of belonging to the household of God. But the problem is that many of us don't think of the church in that way. And the result of that is that our commitment to the church or our commitment to one another is very, very thin. Which is why it's easy to church hop and all those types of things, right? So, you know, think about this. Why is it every time we have a members meeting, we ask our church to read a covenant together? Just because it just seems like a really nice thing to do? It's packed with meaning about what it means to belong to one another. What our responsibility is to one another. When you join to Christ, you bear a responsibility for those who also are joined to Christ. I mean, it's just like if you get married, you bear the responsibility of also to your spouse. And listen, and I want to I draw this out for just real quickly here, because listen, allow me just to make this point. I want to be careful here, but... You know, when, we talk, when I mentioned the comment earlier about church hopping and those kind of things, what we fail to understand is that sometimes God uses challenging relationships in our life as a way of sanctifying us. You know what I just said? Sometimes God will put the most annoying people in your life just to help show what's in you that needs to come out of you. You know, it's exceedingly rare for me to have a disagreement with someone that I also don't learn something about myself in the process. You know, sometimes if I have a disagreement or, or whatnot, you know, maybe I learn maybe that I was being too nitpicky or maybe I was being too prideful, you know, wanting to be right. Or maybe I learned that I lack patience and grace. Or maybe I learned that I didn't even know the whole story or didn't even take, into the, whole, didn't take the whole context Maybe I, maybe I judge too quickly about something, you know? It's very rare to have a disagreement with somebody that you don't, if you're, if you're being objective, if you're being humble, if you're really seeking the Lord, that you won't in the process learn something about yourself and how God can use challenging relationships in order to sanctify us. And he does do that. That's one of the benefits of the church. That we 
that in belonging to each other and encouraging each other and pursuing each other's holiness and sanctification in Christ, we learn that even in the, in the, even in the greatest challenges, when we go through, this, those, through those things together, God uses those challenges in order to sanctify us and make us holy. If we recognize even our marriage and our spouse as an instrument of God's discipleship to teach us love and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control, you probably recognize those words, you'll enjoy that relationship and that marriage a whole lot more, and you'll enjoy the relationship with the church as well, just as the way God intended it. And then, here's what's interesting. What makes our bond to one another so strong is the second point the Apostle Paul makes in verses 20 and 21. What makes our bond to each other so strong is that the church has one foundation. The church has a single foundation, Paul says, in verse 20 here, as the apostles and the prophets with the Lord Jesus Christ being the cornerstone, or really the keystone, you know, the, that, that, that first stone that is set and where all the other building lines are then taken from. It's the, it's the most significant stone laid for the foundation, in verses 13 through 18, we've been brought near by the blood of Christ. Jesus is our peace. We've been united in his death and through the cross. And things, those kinds of concepts is what led the 19th century hymn writer Samuel John Stone to write verses like this. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. And with his own blood he bought her and for her life he died. What an amazing set of verses. That stanza, that stanza that I just read, it ties together those themes of understanding the work of Jesus, especially his death, is the, found, is the foundation stone of the church of how we are all united. We're united by the blood and the testimony of Christ that came from God speaking through the apostles and prophets. You know, it's important for us to recognize that the church has this single foundation, which is ultimately, Paul is speaking about, is the Word of God. You say, well, I thought we were just reading about the blood of Christ. Well, it is, but remember, the Lord Jesus Christ is the supreme, is the supreme revealing of the Word of God, right? What John says, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, right? The apostles and the prophets spoke about Christ, but Christ is the supreme revealing of the will of God. And so all this is on the word of Christ. You know, many New Testament scholars, and some that I deeply respect, will actually take the word prophets here and actually will say that they, they believe it refers to New Testament prophets. Kind of like what in chapter 4, verse 11 that we'll get to later where Paul talks about that the spirit giftedness is, uh, the spirit giftedness, you know, part of that gifting is apostles and prophets. And so they'll kind of lump prophets here in sort of that, you know, that category there. I don't take that view. I actually believe this is in reference to Old Testament prophets. And the reason why is because if you remember back in verse 17 that we studied last week, the Apostle Paul welds together two different quotations from the prophet Isaiah 
And that, that reading right there, verse 17, that he came and preached peace to you who were far away, peace to those who were near, those are actually two verses from Isaiah, 52.7 and 57.19, that Paul welds together to make the single point that the Gentile inclusion in the redemptive history or God's plan of salvation was something that Isaiah was speaking about centuries before. And so he's using that quotation to show that this has all been a part of God's plan from the beginning. Second of all, the language that he uses here um, in, in Ephesians 2.20 about us being built on this foundation and Christ being the chief cornerstone or being the cornerstone, that is language that comes from Isaiah as well. Again, verse, uh, chapter 28, verse 16. In Isaiah 28, 16, Isaiah spoke about a new cornerstone being laid for a new temple structure that was to be built in the future, and anyone who had faith in that cornerstone will not be disappointed. It will result in peace. It's amazing. Whoever, so they, you know, the, the expectation that Isaiah was talking about is that there is a new cornerstone that's going to be laid for a new temple structure that is going to come and whoever believes in that new cornerstone they're not going to be disappointed they're going to be able to experience peace and so that's why I think Paul is saying here that the apostles and prophets have all spoken and all have looked forward to this day where a new cornerstone and this very foundation will be laid for a new structure, a new building, a new temple that we now call the church. God's Disclosing this plan and making it known through his apostles and prophets and his son is what this is about and what is so uh, remarkable about this, that God has had this in his plan of redemption from the beginning. And so the reason why, and this takes us to verses 21 and 22, the reason why there is a foundation is ultimately because there is a building. There's a foundation because there's a building. And this brings us to the, really the final point that Paul makes here in, in this conclusion, that the church is a temple where the Holy Spirit of God takes up residence. The church is the temple. That's what's being built. What is being constructed is a temple where the Holy Spirit of God himself is taken up, has taken up residence. Anywhere that the Spirit of God is resting or residing is a temple. The Lord has chosen the church to be the sacred space that he would dwell. And there's a whole history here about temples in the Bible and how God would use sacred space for his personal presence to dwell, whether that was in the specific garden that he planted in Eden to the tabernacling presence that he had with the Israelites because through the instructions he gave about the tabernacle to the temple itself that David designed and Solomon finally constructed, you know, into where eventually that temple is destroyed. And then we now see that the temple is not spoken about in physical terms. The new temple is not spoken about in something that there's going to be a new construction of a physical facility later. The temple now is, these, is a building that is made up of living stones, of living bricks. You know what? I love that. You and I are just a bunch of bricks. 
Each of us are a brick that God is using to build a structure. And it's a structure of the dwelling place of the Spirit of God. We have to get our... Look, I know that so many of you probably have been taught, and maybe you've got study Bibles that may say something different, you know, that there's actually going to be the expectation of a future building that God is going to, you know, that we're looking for a new temple to be built in Jerusalem, and that's going to signify the coming of Christ, and uh, I don't believe any of that. Let's just throw it out there, okay? And it's actually very contrary to, other, to many other passages that are in the Bible. In fact, what is really interesting is the word building when you look at this word here, um, notice the word building there in verse, in verse uh, 21. He says, in whom the whole building being, uh, 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 being fitted together. That word building right there is the same word that's used for two things. It's used for the temple, but it's also the same word that is used for our edification. It's ultimately the word that we would get edifice from, right? And so, you say, well, why is that significant? Well, because it's speaking of an actual structure, an actual structure that, well, it's the same word that the prophet Ezekiel used in Ezekiel chapter 40 when he, when he had the vision of the new temple, right? But it's speaking about that we are a structure, that we are this building, but that same root word is also used to talk about, you know, our edification, that we are an edifice that is under construction. And so really, when you think about it, when the church comes together and we are to edify one, in, one another, that is because our responsibility is ultimately to contribute to the construction of each other's building up in Christ. You see that? You know, as a, we, we are an edifice under construction and our job is to edify one another. We each contribute in the building process of, one, of each other's sanctification. It's kind of like, think about the imagery of the bricks for just a moment. Each brick does what? Lays on top of a what? Say it. Another brick. You ever see the foundation with one brick and you go, wow, it's a beautiful place you got here. It takes more bricks. And each of us are a brick that God has established in this building that is all meant to be layered up and we support each other. We uphold one another in Christ. We all contribute to this glorious building that God is constructing. We're tied to each other. We're mortared together, so to speak. And all this began with this new creation work that was in, in Christ. And I want to watch my time here, but I, you know, it's, it's helpful for us to understand that all of the, that the, the, the image itself of the temple and what it is, is the temple itself becomes synonymous. It becomes sort of a, a, another word that has been used, you know, another word that helps us to understand that Images such as being in Christ or being in him or being one new man or being in the spirit or being, or, or being into, uh, into a holy temple, all those things are equated with one another. They're all joined together. You say, well, how is that so? Well, I mean, you, you got to think about it, right? I mean, the, the, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
The Lord Jesus Christ was the obedient servant of God who the Holy, you know, the Spirit of God. You remember Jesus' baptism, right? Jesus was baptized. The Holy Spirit descends upon him. And unlike everybody else who was given the Spirit of God, the, you know, the Spirit of God never left the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because there was never disobedience in his life. And the Spirit of God resurrects the body of Christ. As a result of that, Christ himself is the fullness of God's Spirit. On him rests the fullness of God's Spirit. And so we have to understand why this is so significant, right? Jesus, and please hang with me here, Jesus is first and foremost the new temple. His body is the new temple, which is why he can make the statement he did in John chapter 2 and say, if you destroy this body, what will he do in three days? If you destroyed this temple, what am I going to do? I'm going to rebuild it in three days. And the temple, John tells us, is what he's referring to is ultimately his body. What's also significant, though, is right behind that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the apostle Paul tells us that if any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. There is a union between Christ's body being Christ himself, who is physically in heaven. I'll never forget one day. Had a, well, I was at a church, and there was, a, music, it was a, you know, a minister of music who was you know, doing one of those kind of sappy things between songs, you know, going, Jesus is walking down the aisles right now looking at each of you. And being the smart aleck that I was, I kind of said, mm, and started looking around, you know? Because what the guy didn't know was that he just spoke heresy. Christ is enthroned in heaven. He is physically present in heaven and ruling. The presence of Christ is given through Christ's spirit to his church. The reason why we are called Christ's body is because we share Christ's spirit. He blessed us with the same spirit of resurrecting power that brought him to life from the dead is the same spirit that brings us to life from the dead and now fully dwells inside of us. So as a result, the church itself is a microcosm of the future temple in its completed state. It's like that road when I kind of went down and I thought it was complete, but it wasn't quite ready yet. You know, there are times when the church can be beautiful and glorious and, and things, but we're not quite ready yet. God is still working on us. He's sanctifying us. He's, he's completing us. And it's all marching to a day where he will gather in all of his elect, all of his people, and they'll all be joined together and he will catch us up and meet us with him in the air and he will be joined to us forever. He will reign in our midst and there his bride will be absolutely brilliant, spotless, and gorgeous without a blemish. But the church has to be on that path now. Our job is to be these bricks that are supporting and upholding each other and contributing to each other's lives in order that we can be marching towards the future glorious, beautiful bride that God intends for his, the, for, for his son's uh, church to be. Listen, the danger of Christianity in the West has been our individualized faith, where we try to grow spiritually apart from Christ. But what we have to understand is that God never designed the church to be that way. You know what I'm saying? 
God never designed us to be to individually pursue God that way. God designed us to belong to a community, to belong to one another. And what we have to understand is that, you remember when I, re- I said to you last week, when we read that verse in Colossians 3.11, when, when, when a first century ancient person in the Greco world would walk by a household and see these Scythians and barbarians and Romans and, G- and Greeks and Jews and all of them in the same household and they're sharing things and they're worshiping together and they're fellowshipping and they're eating together and they're, when, they, when they witness all of that, they go, what in the world would possibly drive that all of that group of people who have such hostility towards each other, what would drive them all to be under one single roof in worshiping and having such peace and joy together? That is, that is what, that can only happen through the power of God, and that's what we have to display in the church. We have to display in the church what the power of God looks like in a community. Where all the worldly barriers and all the worldly distinctions and all those things are dead and they're meaningless. But what ultimately matters is our union together in Christ. And so we grow when we seek each other's maturity. We grow when we seek, when we seek each other's holiness and make that our priority. We grow when we speak truth and love to one another. We grow when we challenge one another in Christ. We grow when we don't neglect assembling together, when we come with the expectation of worship and fellowship that encourages each other's holiness. Listen, don't come here and just be a spectator. Let's come with the expectation instead that each of us are going to contribute to one another's holiness in this building of this glorious temple dwelling of God's Spirit, where the glory and the radiance of the beauty of Christ will just be displayed all throughout this community and ultimately in this world. Man, that, in a world that is in such hostility right now, hey, think about this way. Rather than throwing bricks, we're going to build each other up as bricks, right? You know? I know, it's terrible. But anyway, you know what I'm saying. All right, look. You know, we don't... But the reality is that we think about the message that we communicate when we are bound together. And as Paul would say in Philippians chapter 2, when each of us are seeking each other's interest above our own. Imagine what that would look like. Mm. May God give us the grace to do that. And so, Father, we do appeal to you for your grace and being able to be a people who would... this understanding, God, that we are this structure that you are building up. You are constructing this glorious temple, God, that where you will just indwell among us and radiate the, the, the glory of Christ and the glory of your grace out of our lives together in Christ. And Father, I pray that, that, will, that we will understand the significance of what it means to be a church what it means for your spirit to dwell among us and what it means for each of us to be living stones as a part of this temple structure that you are building. And Lord, I pray that if we have been too focused on just our individual pursuit of you, Father, help us to bring the right biblical balance to our lives of recognizing, Lord, that we are to have our times of prayer in the closet but we also need our times of prayer with one another. And Lord, that we, 
we, we, can, we can enjoy times of reading and studying on our own, but God, we need that time of edification and being challenged together. Father, help us to hold all these things in balance, recognizing, Lord, you saved us into a glorious new community that we have learned from this passage as a whole new human race that exists to be your bride and to glorify you for all eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Covenant Baptist Church in Valdosta, Georgia. At Covenant, we strive to provide a fellowship that is sound in doctrine, biblical in practice, and loving in our relationship with each other and the community. For more from our elders and teachers, please visit us at covenantbapt.org. That's covenantbapt.org for teachings, articles, and more information about our community.